Now, I've always been fascinated with investigative journalists. I love movies about them. I love watching, you know, stories unfold. And what investigative journalists, it's not, don't think like CSI, Miami, or anything like that, where they're looking at something that's happened in the past and trying to make sense about it. And it's not historians that look way back in the past and make sense of it. We're talking about investigative journalists, people that look at events as they unfold, as they're happening. So I want you to think about Woodward and Bernstein. You guys know who that is? Well, if you, if you don't know who they are, you should watch the movie. It's called All the President's Men. It's about the guys who discovered what was happening in the Nixon administration. And it's amazing. They're unfolding these different events. Or imagine what it would be like to be there when the Berlin Wall fell. Or what it would be like to be there reporting on the, the marches um, through Birmingham, Martin Luther King marches. Imagine what that would be like. And what investigative journalists do is they first off observe. They look around, say, what is happening here? And then secondly, so there's observation, but then they also do implication. What does it mean? What does it mean for society? What does it mean for the people that were there? What does it mean for the readers? And I want to approach our text today through those two lenses. First off, observation. What do we see happening here during the triumphant entry? And then secondly, what are the implications of it? And I want to say that I, th- I think Luke's text is thrusting two things in front of us. The observation is that a case is being made for the king. And the implication is that there's a choice that has to be made regarding the king. So a case and a choice. So let's begin with the case for a king. If you have your Bibles open, you can flip them over to uh, 879 is where, or 878 is where we'll start. Now, from the get-go, it's clear that this isn't just a normal guy walking into Jerusalem during the week of the Passover. It's 878. And I want to look at two clues that, it's, that this is an abnormal thing that's happening. The first thing is what the disciples do. It says that the disciples, as, as Jesus was riding along, they took their cloaks, their robes, and they laid them down on the road. As if to say, Jesus' feet, he's too great to get the dust of Jerusalem road on his feet. And so they laid the cloaks down as, as a red carpet. So first off, we see that this is a significant person. The second thing we see is the palm branches. Everybody got palm branches? Yeah, let me see them, right? You guys did a great job waving your palm branches. Y'all did better than the nine o'clock service. I'm, pr- I'm proud of the 11 o'clock service. Don't tell the 9 o'clock service I said that. Though. Um, but they all were waving palm branches. Now, there's palm branches all around. And why do we wave palm branches? Is this just a, a thing that because the disciples did it, then um, we should do it? Is that why? Why were the disciples waving the palm branches? Well, if you look in the Old Testament and you study Solomon's temple... You see imprints of palm branches everywhere. And then you look at Solomon's palace and you see imprints of palm branches. And there's even coins that have ancient Israel kings on them. And on the side, there's palm branches. And so this is royal imagery. What they're saying is the king has arrived. 
The king is coming. That's what it means when we wave the branches. Like Mike said, we are dramatizing what happened 2,000 years ago. They're saying the king is now entering the city. And so we see a case for the king begins to build. So that's what's happening with, with the crowd. That's what's happening with the disciples. But what about Jesus? What is Jesus' reaction to all of this? And here's what I want us to notice. The observation is that we'd actually be surprised by a couple things about that triumphant entry. There's things that defy our expectations about the way the king looks and the way the king acts. And the first thing is Jesus' war horse. You guys know what he's riding? A big stallion? No, he's not. He's riding a donkey. And it tells us it's a one-year-old donkey. So this is a small little donkey. And I wanted to get a, a, a picture of what that really, what, what that would be like for Jesus to be riding on a donkey. And this is what I found. And I think it's a pretty good representation. <laughs> There's my man, Clint Eastwood, on a little teeny Shetland pony. And I want you to imagine that, that one of his westerns, he comes riding into town. And you know, he's, you know the, 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 he's got his guns loaded. And this is what he comes in on. It's like, what a joke, right? I mean, that's ridiculous. And so Jesus, go ahead to the next one. Um, here's a good, a, a, a pretty decent artistic representation. You see his feet? They're almost rubbing across the ground. It's a little teeny donkey. So why? Why did he choose to ride a donkey? Well, the small donkey symbolizes that as a king, he's not coming to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. And as I was studying through the passage, I noticed a stark contrast between what happens on Sunday and then what happens on Monday, Thursday. On Palm Sunday, we see the disciples. What are they doing? They're taking their cloaks off and they're laying them down. Why? Because Jesus' feet, they don't even want the dust to get on his feet. So it's this act of honor. But what does Jesus do on Thursday? Well, it tells us that he's in the upper room. And what does he do? He takes off his coat, cloak. He takes off his robe, sets it aside, ties a towel around his waist, and he gets down and he washes that same dust off of the feet of the disciples. There's something different about this king. He's a humble king. He's a king that doesn't come to be served, but to serve. So Jesus is the kind of king we want. He's the kind of king we need, but he's not the kind of king that we'd expect. Another commentator points this out about Jesus. So here's another observation, which is a little startling. It says, Jesus is a humble king, but he's not at all a modest king. He's absolutely humble, but he's not at all modest. And if you think about most people, they are either really humble and pretty modest, and they'll be like, hey, look, you know, this is not about me. Or they're bold, they're confident, they're brash, and they're not modest at all, right? They're like, look what I, who I am and what I can do. It is about me. That's generally the two stereotypes that you get of people. But here's Jesus, the unexpected king. Listen, listen, because he's not modest at all. He's humble. Amongst the sinners, amongst the prostitutes, 
He's lowly. He comes alongside them, but he's not modest. And I want you to look in verse 38 through 40. It says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The disciples are worshiping Jesus. They're saying, hey, he's the king. He's the coming king. He's the king of Israel. The king of Israel is here. And then the Pharisees come along and say, teacher, they say to Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Bring them back down to earth. And Jesus doesn't just defend them and say, no, I am the king of Israel. He says, if if my disciples were silent, the stones themselves would cry out. What is he saying? He's saying, yeah, I'm the king of Israel, but I'm much more than that. I'm the king of creation. I'm the king of the universe. He's incredibly humble, but he is not one bit modest about who he is. And so we see Jesus is the kind of king we want. He's the kind of king we need, but he's certainly not the kind of king that we would expect him to be. So those are the observations of the text. That's what we see. But then the harder work is what are the implications? What does it mean? What's the significance of it? And what I want to offer before you is that the implications of what Jesus is claiming about his kingship puts us in an uncomfortable position. It takes us back a little bit because it confronts us with a choice. What do I mean? When Jesus says, if the disciples were silent, I tell you, even the stones would cry out. What he's saying is that I'm not just claiming to be king over a certain time and a certain place. I'm claiming to be king over every person and every time and every place. He's saying, I want to be king over you over each aspect of your life every single day till the day you die. See, Palm Sunday isn't a spectator sport. It isn't the kind of thing that we can just sit on the sidelines and take notes and say, okay, Jesus claimed to be a king. Palm Sunday is actually Jesus making a triumphant entry into our lives and challenging us with the choice that we have to make concerning who he is. Tim Keller, in his sermon on the triumphant entry, says this, you only get two choices. Crown him or kill him. Now Jesus says, comes to each of us and says, crown me or kill me. Those are your options. And we see the, the, the Pharisees say, okay, we are going to kill you. We're not going to have this guy be our king. And then we see the crowds. And the crowds are the ones that try to kind of go the middle way, right? So you see on On Palm Sunday, they're actually joining with the disciples and saying, yeah, yeah, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're singing the Hosanna song that we sing each Sunday. But then on on Friday, these same crowds are saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. See, during the triumphant entry, the the crowds were trying to suspend their judgment. They were trying to hold off on making a choice. They wanted to see how things worked out. If things worked out well for Jesus, yeah, then they would follow him. But if, if things didn't work out well, then they didn't want to follow him. It's kind of like a conservative poker player, right? You're not going to go all in as soon as you see your cards. You're going to wait. You see the cards, but you're going to wait and wait and wait until the last moment. And that's oftentimes, I think, the way that we tend to approach Jesus, that we like him, that we're a fan of his teaching, 
We think he's my helper. I can call on him in times of need. But he doesn't really want everything. That's, it seems a little extreme. And Jesus is saying, no, the choices are crown me or kill me. I want all of you. Jesus says, I want to be more than just your helper. I want to be more than just a time, help in time of need. I want to be your counselor. I want to be your friend. I want to help you fix your marriage. I want to help you put your life back together. I want to show you that I am the Lord of all things. That if you are broken, the only healing comes through me. He says, you can denounce me or declare me king. You can crown me or you can kill me. Now, a Duke professor was, it's March Madness, so and I think Duke won last night, so I can still... I can still mention this. Um, An English professor, he was looking at the Gospels, and he was looking at it through the lens of a writer. He was a novelist as well as an English professor. His name's Reynolds Price, and he was reading the Gospels, and he he said, you know, it struck me about the text that we oftentimes try to water Jesus down or tame him. But it says the Gospels are either a work of madness or of blinding revelation says the acts that the writers portray, the claims they advance, and the ver- from the very first paragraph make a hard choice for us. That's what they present us with. He says, if we take the gospel writers seriously, we must finally ask the question that they thrust towards us. Do the gospel writers bring us a life-transforming truth or a group of gifted lunatics, tales of another lunatic wilder than they? Jesus says, crown me or kill me, but don't just like me. He confronts us with the choice. And then we see the disciples. And a lot of us are disciples. We've said, crown him. We want him to be our king. And that's good. And oftentimes we listen to sermons like this, and I listen to sermons like this, and I say, yeah, nah, preach it, Dan. That's right, this is good. I like this sermon. Um, but once you've decided to follow Jesus, once you've decided that you want him to be your king, it only actually begins the process of asking him to sit on different thrones. And I want you to imagine that our life is like a hallway. And in the hallway, there's a bunch of different doors. And in each of those doors, which are the different parts of our life, are a bunch of different thrones throne rooms of our lives. And oftentimes, we have this way of saying, Jesus, we want you to be king. And you can throw up that that slide. So I want you, we say, okay, Jesus, be king. And we have things like our marriage, our career, our money, our parenting, our free time, friends and popularity. There's lots of other things in here. And the reality is, it doesn't come easy to get Jesus on the throne of each of these things. It's always a constant battle. It's like this musical chairs game where we're saying, okay, Jesus, we want you to have control of our lives. And then before you know it, we're sitting back on the throne. And then we say, no, Jesus, we want you to have control. And then we sneak back in there and we say, we want control. That's, that's, that's what we do. That's what sinful nature is all about. So the question is, where are you at? Where do you find yourself, maybe unsuspectingly, or maybe you've been there for a while, out of these things that you're a Christian, but you know that you're probably on the throne in one, one or more of these areas? 
And how do we know? How do we know if we've dethroned Christ? And I want to suggest that anxiety, and I'm not someone who's conquered anxiety, so I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching alongside you. I'm hearing this sermon with you. That anxiety is often a telltale sign that we're trying to sit on the throne. Because what it is, is that we as servants are trying to be the masters of our own lives. And I see this play out in my life. When I try to control things, when I try to sit on the throne, my anxiety begins to skyrocket because I'm worried about the things and I'm trying to control them. And even if I can control the things in my life, in my marriage, amongst my friends, amongst my family, then there's a future. And I know I don't have really any control over that. And so anxiety stalks us when we try to sit on the throne. But here's what I want to tell you. That only Jesus, the true king of everything, can truly handle and control our lives. Keep that up there. And I want for our first application, for actually the main application of this passage, is I want you to to take your palm branch. Everybody should have one. If you don't have one, I think that there's some extras in the back, so grab one. Um, You can hold them up if you want. One more time. Um, I want you to take this. And I want you to pick one of those things. So wherever it is that anxiety is just, just tearing you apart. And I want you to put this palm branch somewhere memorable. Maybe it's on your dashboard in your car. You can put them down now. I don't want you to wear your arms out. Um, put it somewhere memorable on your dashboard, on your mirror, in your bathroom. Somewhere you, where you're going to see it fairly frequently. Take it to work. And leave it there for a couple weeks. And let it be a reminder that you want Jesus to be king over whatever place that is. And then ask yourself these questions. Ask Jesus these questions over that realm. Jesus, what do you want? What do you want for my marriage? What do you want for my career? Or Jesus, what would bring you glory in my parenting? What would bring you glory in my free time? What would bring you glory with my money and my stuff? And let this be a physical, tangible reminder for you that you're asking Jesus to be the king there. And here's the deal. Anytime we do this, Jesus meets us there. He meets us. And so, today, make him your king. If the throne is empty or you're on the throne, make him your king. And I want to end today with a video. Now, it's a video of um, a guy named S.M. Lockridge. You may have seen it. I may have gone viral, I don't know. But I've watched it like six times now in my life, and it's good every time. But this guy is, uh, he's an African-American pastor. He was an African-American pastor in the 60s. And so it was a tumultuous time. Um, He worked in the civil rights movement. He pastored a large church in California. And it was a tumultuous time, a time of anxiety, a time where you could very easily begin to wonder, is God really in control? Is he really still the king? And I want you to notice the case that he builds for who Jesus is as a king. And then I want you to see the choice that he makes. So go ahead. 
Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is lighter. One more time, right? <laughs> All right, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray for every man, woman, and child in this room that you would show them Jesus. And Lord, I pray that they would choose Jesus. And Lord, if there's anyone in here that doesn't know Jesus, I pray that they would seek somebody out after this service or this week and ask questions. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for being our king. We thank you for handling the things in our lives 
how we can't live without you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.